When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each. So if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. A quick warning. This episode mentions violence, racism, sex, and self-harm. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth 
of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Captain Shad Mishad. Mishad served in Vietnam on a psychiatric team where he evaluated and assisted soldiers dealing with mental health issues. In this first part of his interview, he talks about working with Vietnam vets at Fort Leavenworth Military Prison and his service in Vietnam. My name is Shad Mishad. Left Vietnam Christmas Eve, 1970. U.S. Army Captain, Medical Service Corps. Today, I'm the president and founder of the National Veterans Foundation, which is a crisis and information hotline all over the United States for all veterans and their families and kids. My first year was at Fort Leavenworth Military Prison, 10,000 prisoners in the castle. And there was, if you're familiar with prisons, there's the hole. It's the incorrigibles. And at Leavenworth, the hole was... Yeah, it was like a hundred-year-old prison, and it was cold and damp, and they kept as many as 30 incorrigible combat vets down there for incidents upstairs. They call it the castle, you know, the regular tiered prison. And uh, I was new mental health officer, and I was uh, excited to, you know, get my feet wet. I, you know, I've gone from infantry to medical service corps, went to you know, Fort Sam Houston for basic, but I really didn't know anything. I mean, right out of school and everything. So I wanted to find out in the uh, head of the mental health department there, there were 15 of us, five psychiatrists, five social workers, five psychologists at Fort Leavenworth for 10,000 prisoners. And he was looking for someone to volunteer to run a group in the hole. <laughs> and I, I said, I'm it, I'm it. Uh, you know, I I, I didn't want to sit in an office inside the prison and see people complaining about their time or they didn't do it. Or, you know, we had 3,000 inmates in that 10,000 prison that were there for marijuana busts serving three years back then, three years for possession of marijuana. So I, I really deal with something more complicated. Well, I went down to uh, the hole and there's 19-year-old guards with shotguns. It's below the prison. It's damp as hell. Uh, there's just strip cells. If you know what a strip cell is, it's just a concrete floor with a hole and whatever. If they're behaving somewhat well, they, they get a blanket at night to sleep on the floor. Other than that, they're like caged animals. And so there was a section at the end, which was secure, where they were going to let those out that they didn't have to fight and drag out for the first rap group for me. So I go in, I take off my hat, took off my dress greens, because this is stateside. They set up this circle with uh, folding chairs, and I'm sitting there facing at least 25 really hardened criminals in my mind, and I'm going to run a group. So the First thing before I started, I mean, you've got four guys with shotguns behind the cage and I'm sitting there and it's like, uh, well, I guess maybe I'm safe. I didn't know. I had never been in the hole before and it was getting kind of exciting. And then before I could start, this one inmate down there looked at me and said, are you an officer? Who are you? And I said, look, I'm, I'm uh, Shad. I just said my first name. 
And I said, I'm new here, mental health worker, and I'm here to help you guys get upstairs in the population. And he looked at me and he said, those shotguns or whatever, if we want to eat you, they can't save you before we will eat you. And they're all looking at me. It was like being in a lion's den and I'm just sitting there. And I said, I got it. I understand that totally. I'm not here to do anything but to help you get out of here. And I started talking. So I had to address this guy who was very hostile. And I can understand why, because these 19-year-old guards or whatever would harass them. And, uh, you know, they're just teenagers. They're just kids. But these guys, I found out, were in, had been in Vietnam for all kinds of crimes, rape, fraggings or whatever. That is where I learned about the dark side of Vietnam. And I got to meet combat soldiers who were angry, frustrated, most of them black and, and, and Hispanic and a few whites. But, you know, it kind of taught me what uh, I was going to go into the next year because the war had really swung in 68. You know, the country was mostly hawks and then they became dubs. And it was like, wow. Uh, they started telling me the stories of what they did and the fact that uh, a lot of these second lieutenants and officers came in, were having them do things where they had been there a year and knew was stupid and was going to get everybody killed. So they took care of business, many of them. And a lot of them, uh, uh, they all did serious crimes. But the fact is that they didn't have to be in the hole. And regardless of what, they, you know, you don't want to spend your life down in, in a cage. That's how I looked at it. So I started just talking my way into saying, hey, let me try to get you out of here. Let me listen to your stories. And that's really where my career started. I mean, even in mental health, because that was the toughest ever. And I had to really listen and a lot, and mostly in shock because I hadn't been to Nam yet. And here I'm listening to these combat soldiers and I could understand somewhat why they were in prison, but at the same time, what is their future? I mean, are we just going to storm down here till they die or what? You know, I was like I said, I was totally confused. And so I, I started going down every week. I was the only one. I mean, the mental health team used to say, you're, you're out of your mind. Uh, they said that a few times. But eventually I started getting them back up into the thing. They trusted me. Uh, they saw that I had really no fear uh, after the first time. I didn't show fear anyway. I was really like, hey, uh, I, I'm your only hope. If you're going to get back in the population, I'm it. If I leave or if you take care of me, there's nobody coming down here. You're just going to rot down here. And I started uh, the next six months. I got about half of them back up in the population. And I, uh, I, w I was kind of like the unique mental health officer that goes to the hole every week. And uh, But I learned a lot about Vietnam. And th that is when... I did a two-year, I had a two-year ROTC contract, even though I switched from, I got moved from infantry to medical service corps because of my degree. You know, I uh, I only had a two-year contract because I started my contract in 63. Right after that, they went to three years. So I did my, my end of my first year at Leavenworth was coming to an end, and they can't send you anywhere after a year 
Uh, if you only have a year left, you're going to stay where you are. They're not going to transfer you. And uh, I had lost two high school friends during the period of 64 to 69. I lost two college friends and buddies I played ball with there. And and working in the hole and re- really realizing what war's about. You know, I, I, I was going to be – I wasn't uh, – Aware, you know, I've seen John Wayne movies or whatever, and always saw the heroic side of war, and wanted to be that person. But the other, the other side was, I really, you know, I'm twenty, twenty four, going on twenty five. I'm an old man as far as somebody starting their military duty, and I need to know. My generation is. I've lost four people out of my generation, and. I woke up one night and I went to my commanding officer there, the head of the mental hygiene clinic, and said, I'm thinking I I, I need to be I need to go to Vietnam. I hear they've got these mental health teams and I've really learned a lot of whatever. I think I can do something or whatever. And he said, no, no way. You're, You're out of your mind. And we had a new psychology officer come in who was just married he was assigned to Fort Leavenworth, and he, uh, his wife, uh, he had a beautiful young wife and everything. He was billeted uh, outside. I was in the BOQ. He was in married quarters. And the second week there, he gets a manifest for Vietnam. He's just right out of, uh, you know, Fort Sam Houston. He's got a PhD in psychology. He's green. He's never been in the military except, you know, as a mental health officer. And uh, the next night, his wife slid slid her wrist and uh, nearly died. And it was like my cue. And I I took that, I went in, and I talked to commanding officer and switching me before the end of the year and put me in his place in the manifest. And it was not some, you know, not so much to save his butt, but it was like I really wanted to see it myself. My father, both of my uncles, Alex, were in World War II, and I really wanted to see if I was man enough to whatever. And I'm a mental health officer. I'm not going over as a second lieutenant, but I just needed to eyeball it. I'm just that kind of person. I want to smell it and whatever. And after uh, after a lot of negotiation, I got switched. In January, I was on my way to Vietnam. And uh, it's really interesting. The mental health team really thought I had went crazy. They, they wouldn't even talk to me. I mean, I was shocked. I figured, you know, I didn't, they thought I was mentally ill. You got to be out of your mind, you know, because they're, you know, they've spent their years stateside listening to war fighters. And I just, you know, I was an athlete. I was trained infantry. Here, I'm a mental health officer. I've had this experience in the hole. I got to know. I got to know if I can handle I mean, I got to know. And so in January, I flew in uh, from Seattle to Cameron Bay, and the rest became my war history.
Well, uh, I was a U.S. Army Captain Medical Service Corps in 1970 in Vietnam. I was with, uh, they were called KO teams. They were the first psychiatric teams in American warfare. Uh, Vietnam was the first time. I was probably one of the 15, maybe 20 officers that were mental health officers that served in country uh, from like 68 to 73. We're very rare birds. Uh, I was trained uh, and commissioned uh, in college through ROTC, uh, 2nd Lieutenant Infantry, and I got a fellowship to grad school and uh, was trained uh, 82nd Airborne, actually, in 65, 66. And then when I graduated, the military gave me a 36 months for grad school. And I went on to grad school at Florida State University. And uh, when I graduated in uh, 68, the, the Army approached me again and said, we're putting mental health teams in there. Would you consider going into the Medical Service Corps? <laughs> well, uh, that was a, probably a life-saving thing because the lifespan of second lieutenant infantry in Vietnam was about 60 seconds in the field. So I was transferred uh, on paper to Medical Service Corps, went to basic in 69 for that branch, and then in 70 went into Vietnam. When I landed in Vietnam, uh, there was a lot of changes going on in uh, in the whole zone. There were four areas in Vietnam, one corps, two corps, three corps, four corps. And they sent me to one corps after I landed in Cameron Bay to assist uh, one psychiatrist that was up covering the DMZ, all of I-Corps, Marines, Navy, Army, 101st. And uh, there was uh, the psychiatrist, myself, psychiatric social worker, and two motor pool technicians that screened maybe 50 or 60 combat soldiers coming through the 95th Avac Hospital, which is in Da Nang. And uh, it was uh, an incredible start, but the commander of one and two corps medical was based or was lodged on the 95th Avac. He covered all medical, all the medevac ships, all the hospitals and everything. Uh, he was a colonel and he took a liking to me for whatever reason. Uh, I won't get into it here, but he decided because I uh, I was a fifth army weightlifted guy and he was a big, strong 52 year old colonel that uh, I, sh I should be able to fly and be the the uh, special services officer flying into all of his medical zones for any kind of problems, whether with staff, with, with, with that time in 70, there were racial issues, there were fraggings that many people don't talk about, but I was thrown amongst that. So uh, in the beginning of each week, Monday and Tuesday, I'd load up at around 6 a.m. and head up to one of the areas in one and two core, which he covered from Quang Tri, Phu Bai, Chu Lai. I went to all the, the bases uh, and dealt with uh, whatever was thrown at me, to be honest. I mean, everything was in anything. I'm an author on, on my year in Vietnam, captain for Dark Mornings. And uh, 
at best, uh, we had to manipulate the system uh, as a mental health officer because the commanders, the COs, had the power. They would send people to us that they thought were having emotional difficulties. And then it was their decision uh, to go along with our recommendation to either get them out of the field or leave them at the hospital for for three weeks to unwind. They could nix any of that. So we really didn't have any power. We didn't have any authority. We would do the evaluation, make recommendations. And in many cases, once they saw us, they went back to their unit. And uh, some really bad things happened. I've picked a couple, two or three in my book that guys that went back to the command because they thought they were uh, shirking their military duty. And uh, there were some real tragic things that happened, including fraggings of the commander to uh, just trust me, there were some really horrible things that happened. It was really difficult to not have authority or whatever. And it was the first time ever we were kind of feeling our way trying to be mental health workers in a combat zone. And uh, I brought up fragging for those that aren't familiar with the term fragging. It's really when uh, the enlisted men uh, decide to take the life of their commander, usually a platoon leader or a company commander. And what I experienced in Vietnam was basically uh, setting up these Claymore mines in positions where the commander would would trip it and get blown away. It, it happened quite a bit. It's not something that's written around, a lot about. I wrote about it in my book. But that was what fragging is. Some of the interesting stories that led to a couple of frackings was one, uh, I had a uh, artillery sergeant referred to me. It was on his second tour, came into my office when I was at the 95th because I had an office there across from the psychiatrist. And I would, we would both split up 40 or 50 guys coming in about anything and everything. And uh, it was my first month there. And he sat down in the office. These were Quonset huts. They were about the size of a nine by nine room with a metal table. But he uh, was telling me about the fact that the concussions being in artillery uh, after a year and in his second tour, he couldn't handle it anymore. And he just was uh, freaking out. And, you know, it's pretty dangerous when you're dealing with, you know, 105s and things that you're loading. And he, uh, I was trying to say, but I said, at least you're not out in the field humping the bush and, and, and driving through there. And he said, well, uh, it's hard to explain. And about that time, we had a rocket land about, oh, about 50 meters from our hooch, and I was under the table, and he was sitting there looking down at me. He said, Captain, that's what I'm talking about. And I, I kind of got it. I, uh, I can imagine, you know, 18 months of that going off, it could affect your nerves. But once again, I I referred him to for three weeks off in the uh, once again, the commander demanded he go back to his unit. So we didn't have any power there. Another time I had another sergeant come in that was with the uh, supply unit in Da Nang, which is big. There, you know, a lot of supplies ran in and out of the Da Nang. The Marine, Marines were still in I Corps there, and there was everything coming through Da Nang Harbor. And this kid... Uh, one day just walked up to his commander and he was like, 
one of the key sergeants in the supply group and said, uh, I got to go home. I, I need an emergency leave. And he said, what do you mean? We're, you, you can't go home. And he kept demanding it and he started acting weird. So the commander sent him over to, uh, to the 95th. I was sitting down with him and he was just shaking. I'm looking at this sergeant, uh, decorated second tour. And I said, why do you want to go on an emergency leave? He says, I, I just, I just need it. You know, I just want to go. I just need three days and I'll come back. There's no problem. Uh, I love my job, but I have to go back. And I said, you know, you really, your, your commanding officer is probably not going to let you go back. And if, uh, you know, you got to give me a better reason than you need to go back. Uh, just saying you got to go back for three days. It must be something serious. Is there something going on? And he just started shaking. He, he closed up and then he started tearing. And this is a big sergeant. And then he opened uh, an envelope out of his shirt cami and showed me one picture at a time. And it was his wife uh, making love to his best friend uh, in every position. And he would just show it and he was just staring at me and I was just staring at these, these photos with her, you know, with the bird finger saying, fuck you for going back a second tour. And I just right away said, look, if I send you back for three days, I know why you're going back. And this was a tough decision on my part. But I said, you know, uh, you know, if I'm going to write this up, which I did, and you go back to your commanding officer, it's, it's in his hands. But I, I know what's going to happen. And you're going to knock this guy off and maybe your wife and. uh you're definitely not coming back here. I know where you're going because my first year I was assigned to, to Fort Leavenworth Military Prison, and I know exactly how that goes. And so I wrote it up. He went back to his unit, and his commanding officer says, you go back and take care of business. And I always wondered what happened when he approved that leave to go back. So that was one of the stories. A lot of, you know, we had men coming in that were fully armed, you know, right out of the field. We had the 101st, 3rd Marines, Freedom Hill up in uh, I-Corps. So we had, you know, probably 170,000 troops in our area. And there was uh, <laughs> four of us dealing with any any type of problems like some of those I've shared. But we, we had one angry black soldier come in covered with grenades a saw, an M60, and, you know, the clinic, we would ask them to take their weapons off and just leave it, you know, right outside the hooch where we were. That's That was standard policy. And this guy came in and wouldn't take anything off. Oh, it was really upset. At that time uh, in the war, there was a, a lot of racial issues, particularly with the blacks. Martin Luther King's death had happened. There had been a lot of all kinds of crazy stuff going on, particularly with the black soldiers and with the white commanders. And uh, we had a big uh, first sergeant that came in that tried to talk him in. And he, we were near the ammo dump and he grabbed the grenade and went out to the ammo dump, uh, the ammo dump and was threatening to blow up and would have blown the whole compound away. And 
I had to go out there and uh, negotiate him uh, with him, telling him we're not the enemy. We'll do everything we can to deal, but we got to know what's going on. And uh, uh, we're not going to get anywhere if you blow us all away. And eventually myself and one of the team nurses, a woman that came out, a major, never forget. And probably with her help in helping me get him to give the grenade. And the grenade was already pulled. He had it in his hand and uh, he handed it over and we pitched it up against the, uh, the Constantina wire. The whole compound was surrounded and it blew and he broke down and we basically, I mean, got him evacuated out of country or whatever. Uh, it was just crazy stuff like that. And particularly, uh, I would fly to different uh, hospitals that the commander uh, had when we would fly in and we'd have issues with drugs. That was another big thing. We had one, one uh, I think it was the 71st of VAC. I think it was in Pleiku area. I can't remember all the names because I flew all the time. And uh, there was a, uh, a nurse that was... Uh, protesting. She became very famous, but she was protesting the fact that the the medics and everybody were overworked. They were getting a lot of mass casualties. And so she tried to pull a strike. That was very unusual. <laughs> I didn't know how to handle that, but I flew into it and I had to negotiate that. Uh, so the hospital wouldn't shut down and everybody would be court-martialed, obviously, because we're right in the middle of the war. Pleiku area was a very hot area. Marikal was operating. And uh, I had to sit with her and negotiate peace and try to meet some of the needs of some of the, the medics or whatever. Met with the commanding officer. And that, uh, that sort of uh, eased. It was funny. Years later, uh, that nurse uh, became very famous. Uh, she. Uh, became a friend of mine years later. And she became a member of the Vietnam Veterans of America and uh, for the women veterans and whatever. But that was that was one. The, what, probably one of the strangest ones was I was sent up to Quang Tri to the 18th Surge, which is right on the DMZ. And uh, the colonel said, look, uh, the commanding officer's been there three weeks and he hasn't come out of his trailer and uh, they, they can't get him to come out. Well, this is a full bird colonel that's head of a surgical hospital right on the DMZ. And he sends me up there to find out what's going on. So I chop her from Da Nang up to Quang Tree, get out, head over to the CO, the commander of the hospital. And, uh, knock on the door and I tell him that the colonel sent me up to talk to him. So he let me in and uh, he laid back down on his, his, well, you know, the trailers are pretty nice for the colonels, you know, at least they were air conditioned and whatever. He was coiled up in the fetal position. Um, you know, I'm just this captain. And I said, I had to sit there like a man with a child comforting and realize that, uh, whether it was shell shock, whatever you want to call it, he just had never been in the combat zone. 
and uh, it's a full board colonel, and he couldn't come out to manage the hospital. And uh, I had to radio down to the com- our commander and, and tell him what was going on. I said, you know, we don't want to upset the hospital because there's, you know, there's casualties coming in every time. And, you know, the nurses and doctors in charge do a pretty good job of running it, but the commander's down. That's how I put it. And I had to stay up there two days and escort him down. And eventually he was evacuated and they replaced him. These stories are pretty shocking. I, I had uh, I did all the mental health reviews for all the commanding general of I Corps who did all the court martial cases that were, you know, that happened quite a bit. Uh, as as you may know, if you were in Vietnam, there were all kinds of things that went on. But I uh, sort of got a call from the JAG officer for the general, and he said he's bringing in. He wanted an evaluation of someone that was up for murder. And uh, they brought him in from over in Da Nang over to our compound in chains with MPs. And he was uh, uh, in chains, sat down in my office. Uh, He was an L.A. kid. He was a sniper for the 101st. And uh, this is his second tour, another second tour guy. And uh, he was key on that team. But the last three months... They kept uh, coming back on patrol with three of their own men shot in the head that were scattered, setting up for ambushes in i And uh, one of them finally realized that it was him shooting his own men. And uh, that's what I had to deal with. So when he came into the office, you know, I have this report here. I said, so what's going on with you? You're up for several murders with your old man, what's going on? And he says, well, have you ever been out there? Have you ever been a sniper? And I said, well, no, no, no. I I still don't understand why you would shoot your own man. He says, well, for the last three months, we haven't hit any enemy, any, any charges. Uh, we've set up uh, great ambushes and nothing's going on. He says, uh, I got to keep my skills sharp. So I just started picking off some of my own some of my own, they were new FNGs, fucking new guys, and they didn't know what the hell they were doing. And I figured, you know, I just uh, keep my skills sharp. That's all he said. And he just looked at me and uh, I sent him back to the JAG and, and that was his answer. He wouldn't say anything else. He didn't cry. He just said, you know, I got to keep my skills up. And uh, I just said, my, my God. <laughs> This is insane what's going on. I don't know if this went on in other wars, but this was really uh, pretty shocking to me. That was Captain Shad Mishad. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we'll hear him describe the rest of his service in Vietnam, including the most traumatic night of his life and how he continued to help veterans after he returned home. To learn more about Mishad, check out his memoir, Captain for Dark Mornings. The link is in the show description. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. 
Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.